Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new Books in the Arts and Sciences panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia University's Dean of Humanities and School of Arts and Sciences and the Heyman Center for the Humanities and the Society of Fellows. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Associate Professor of Slavic Languages Liza Knapp's book Anna Karenina and Others, Tolstoy's Labyrinth of Plots. This podcast is accompanied by a sister podcast, which is focused on Irina Raifman's book, How Russia Learned to Write, Literature and the Imperial Table of Ranks. First, I'll bring you Liza's words from the panel, where she begins by speaking about the puzzle inherent in the title of her book. Hi, thanks to everyone for being here, and it's a special delight to share this with Irina Raifman. I'm grateful to the organizers and the panelists near and far who braved blizzards back in February in an attempt to get here, and now we're willing to come again. And um, it means the world. Um, I wanted to say a couple of words about the origins of this book and about the possible puzzle posed by its title, which is Anna Karenina and Others. It's, uh, there's a double meaning there, and it's about Anna Karenina, the character, and what she and her life have to do with others, starting with Seryozha, Lievin, on to strangers in the train station. And then on a structural level, it's about what Anna's plot has to do or doesn't have to do with the other plots that Tolstoy managed to fold into um, this novel. And then at this end, by extension, then it's about multiple plot and what this does to the reader who has to sort of deal with, divide attention and follow different um, modes of finding meaning in the novel. But it also has to do with Anna Karenina, the book, and other texts and other authors. In other words, it's about the novelistic DNA, the sources, the subtext, the intertext, the influences. And speaking of book titles and confusing book titles, um, Tolstoy's is kind of confusing. That is, um, Anna Karenina um, raises all sorts of questions. The title Anna Karenina raises questions from readers, and I know from experience of teaching and talking about this novel in different contexts that readers kind of wonder, you know, why is this called Anna Karenina? And back in 2004, I had the honor of being the literary expert on Oprah.com when um, <laughs> Oprah Winfrey chose Anna Karenina for her book club, and the book sold a million copies and was a bestseller in the summer of 2004. And I would answer ch- questions chosen by Oprah's um, assistants. And one of those questions was by somebody named Nancy Pace. And it's, why is this book titled Anna Karenina? And I'm quoting from Nancy Pace. It seems to be such a story of everyone. I find Lievin and Kitty to be as rich and fascinating as the downfall of Anna, Vronsky, and Karenin. Why did Tolstoy choose Anna's name as the title instead of something more general? And, you know, why is it called Anna Karenin? And this is one of the many seeds, this question by Nancy Pace, and my response is one of the many seeds of this novel. And if in Middlemarch, the novel that many would regard as the closest Anna Karenina has to a cousin or a sister. Um, The narrator trying to wean us from monocentric 
reading habits. School marms us and asks, but why always Dorothea? And tries to divert our attention to other other characters who might not seem to be as compelling, such as Casabon, or tries to get us to sort of accept the fact that at least according to her theories, Mary Garth has equal novelistic franchise. Um, you know, that's what happens in Middlemarch, and I think that readers of Anna Karenin often find themselves asking, why not more Anna? Unless, of course, you're Nancy Pace, and um, like Kitty and Levin's, um story, but many readers, and here's the heart of it, I think really want to know what we are to make of Kitty and Levin's family happiness and Robin Miller herself has had terrific things to say and to invite us to question the Yevon family happiness and what it has to do with Anna Karenina. And here Robin Miller is in the company of Virginia Woolf, who in her reading notes, one of the many several times that Virginia Woolf read Anna Karenina, she wanted to know, well, what about Anna at the end when Anna is under the train and everyone gathers at Pakrovskaya, and Anna does not come into the mind of Kitty or Lievin or others. And um, Virginia Woolf, in fact, wrote that it offended her that nobody thought of Anna. And in my book, I treat her, Mrs. Dalloway, as a kind of novelistic repost to the ending of Anna Karenina, well, to the whole of Anna Karenina, to, to the structure of Anna Karenina, and to its other endings, uh, its other, um, to the other plots. Um, then also, well, the, as the title suggests, this is about how the plots of the novel do or don't connect, and here I'll just quote to you, and Tolstoy was well aware of this problem, his contemporary readers complained about it, and I'll quote Buddy Seichenbaum, who said that at best we have an Anna Karenina, the plots connected by dotted lines. So I guess I'm kind of here um, connecting those dotted lines. Um, and on the subject of novels named after one character, as a challenge to the reader to ask what one person's life has to do with another, I can't help in honor of Eileen Kaluli bringing up David Copperfield, a novel that was very dear to Tolstoy's heart, even unto Anna Karenina. And as some of you might remember, David Copperfield begins with good old David Copperfield, the narrator, coyly inviting us to consider, quote, whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life or whether that station will be held by anybody else, these pages must show. Um, and in some ways, I think it's this question in David Copperfield that sort of inspired Tolstoy and Anna Karenina because it creates that same kind of anxiety about the focus on me, myself, and Davy, and that it's the tale of David getting married and then getting remarried and achieving uh, success as a novelist and um, children and whatever else. And from the Russian point of view, we're going to get anxious about this tableau. And here, this is an aside, but I can't help you might, in other words, be wondering, well, what about Dora? What about little Emily? And Steerforth might have gotten what he deserves, but you know, what about these others? And I just wanted you, Eileen, to know that good old Dora had an afterlife 
at Yasnai Palyana Tolstoy's estate because according to his son, his most beloved of the many dogs was an Irish setter called Dora. And then they got an English governess, and her name was Dora too, and we had problems with this English governess because nobody nobody respected her because she was named after Dora. And then, and then it has occurred to me to wonder whether Virginia Woolf at least knew that um, Alfred Lord Tennyson's favorite dog was a borzoi given to him by the Russian noble family. And that dog's name, and this is this is the dog in the famous statue of Tennyson with this, I guess, Borzoi, was Karenina. So <laughs> somebody's remembering these these victims of other people's family and family happiness. And now for the meaning of Anna Karenina and others, meaning Anna Karenina, the work and other texts and other authors. One of the myths about Tolstoy. And since, well, his fate has been very often to be contrasted to Dostoevsky, you know, one of the myths is that whereas Dostoevsky wrote from books, riddling fiction with references to other writers, and that he wore his subtexts and sources on his <laughs> sleeves, Tolstoy just wrote as life itself, or um, <laughs> played his subtext close to his vest. And of course, um, uh, or the other one that people like to quote in terms of Tolstoy is from Horace and this notion that oh, wow, Tolstoy was like a bee gathering pollen and transforming it into honey. And you, know, you can't tell where that honey is coming from. In other words, he was so masterful at processing everything. Um, and I'm reminded of something that I think Bill Todd once said or wrote, and he was writing about Russian writers and the phenomenon that actually Asip Mandelstam refers to when he says that, you know, biography, Russian writers don't have biographies, just look at what they've read and, you know, they're done. And I think, Bill Todd, you at one point took a certain Bomo by Feuerbach. Is yes. this true? Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. All right. And, and which yeah. is, and I will, well, it is, man is what he eats. And you're going to say it for us in German. No, I'm not. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't know. Man is was man least. Well, his man is what he reads. change yeah. was a slight phonological yeah. change of, I don't know, a consonant and a vowel from man is what he eats to man is what he reads, and yes, that's true yes. of the Russian tradition, and Tolstoy you know, does not get off the hook here. He's Russian as the day is long in, in that respect, in my opinion, and that's actually what this book is about. And in some respects, I would like to think that what I'm doing here with Anna Karenina follows in the footsteps of what Robert Belknap did in the genesis of Brothers Karamazov, looking at the various sources, and he called that one a study of what goes into and what comes out of a creative mind. And this is sort of what I'm trying to do here um, with Anna Credit. I'll just stop there. Robin Miller, Editha Macy Gross Professor of Humanities at Brandeis, responded to Liza's book at the panel. Here, she describes what she calls putting the works one studies into play and discusses Liza's book as an example. Much and it's such a joy to be here with everyone. Um, the rich chapters of Liza's book can each be read separately, 
but their cumulative effect is the articulation of a multi-plotted argument. Eliza keeps several major questions under scrutiny from the beginning right through to the end of this outstanding volume. But because this is a celebratory occasion, as well as a scholarly one, let me indulge in a very speedy personal memory sparked by Liza's first chapter, The Estates of Pokrovskaya and Vazdivjenskaya, Tolstoy's Labyrinth of Linkages in Anna Karenina. Here Liza explores the ramifications of the patterns of life and the movements between Levin and Kitty's estate, where tradition and settled ways are dominant, and that of Anna and Vronsky, who are trying to build a country life together. I remember two very different country places, precious to a number of us here, both in Maine, one on Cliff Island, the other in the tiny hamlet of Brooklyn. These were two quite disparate worlds as well, both complete in themselves, both offered hospitality to friends far and wide. The worlds of two Columbia colleagues within the Slavic department, Robert Belknap and Rufus Mathewson. I first met Liza at the, <laughs> at the Mathewson estate at a traditional, almost ceremonial post-meal soccer game that occurred on the occasion of Rufus's funeral. Liza was then a first-year graduate student, um, about the age of Kitty in the novel, but much more, <laughs> well, but, but this is the important part, much more likable. Um, Belknap joined in the, in the game, which was marred only by my husband in the heat of play, mistaking Rufus's corgi, Homer, for the ball. <laughs> The Cliff Island Refuge, in contrast, was a place with a serious vegetable garden and filled with innumerable innovative small inventions of all kinds. Think old Volkonsky's estate. Sides of the house that could open up like garage doors, hearthstones placed from a wheelbarrow onto a perfectly positioned block of ice, all created by Bob with his keen eye for surprising detail and love of tinkering. Both encouraged their students to put the works they studied and wrote about into play. This has become a tradition for the department and is just as strong today as ever. The result, an impressive pile of books produced by these Columbia generations over the decades and still coming. And a very brief word about Irina's book, though my subject is Liza's. Having read it, I will never again teach my Russian 19th century survey courses in the same way. We've turned a number of things on their heads for me. And you also suggest, uh, really suggest new metaphors that we can begin to engage with for thinking about Russian literature and its creators. To continue with the notion of play, Liza has accomplished this in a unique way in this book, for she has an unusual talent for discovering seemingly simple details that can illuminate or unpack big ideas. Moreover, her knowledge of the Bible, of world literature, of philosophy, and the history of science does not render her work ponderous or dry, because her intellectual honesty, reflected in her refusal to place an ideological grid on her work, produces new insights about Anna Karenina and those others, many others who are the subject of this book. Critics since Boris Eichenbaum have remarked on how Tolstoy in Anna Karenina combines the novel of adultery with the family novel to create a unique Russian hybrid. 
Liza deepens this insight by maintaining that it is the interplay of these two plots, threads, really three, because of course she includes the Oblonskys, that forms the fabric of the novel. As her argument develops, we see that the questions overarching and permeating these multiple plots are, how shall I live? <laughs> Who is my neighbor? How can I love him? And eventually, why live? The typical dilemmas of the conventional family novel or novel of adultery become ever more distant from the living center of the work and instead provide a canvas for a far more elemental drama to unfold. From the question, what does Anna's life and death have to do with Dolly's or Levin's? Liza turns abruptly to Luke 10:29, who is my neighbor, as well as to numerous other moments throughout the whole book from the Bible. Um, her ease, or seeming ease, because it isn't easy, in moving from the Bible to Pascal to Darwin, for example, suggests a kind of virtuosity. But her far-ranging insights serve our understanding of the text and never seem to be a display of her own intellectual plumage. This reassures the reader that Liza is playing fair. Her massive task in this book is to understand and put in conversation with each other a substantial number of major works, most notably Gogol's Dead Souls, Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, Eliot's Middlemarch, Anna Karenina, Pascal's Pensees, and Wolf's Mrs. Dalloway. She orchestrates, and again, following you, an inner conversation, Pascal's term, which, de which Liza develops at length among them. There's been a recent upsurge of interest in inner conversations or auditory hallucinations recently. Witness a recent article in The New Yorker, January 9th, uh, by Jerome Groupman, The Voices in Our Heads. Liza's treatment of this phenomenon contributes to that current dialogue. Through her reading of Pascal, Liza demonstrates how such conversations can either lead to a kind of religious faith or they can run amok. In her chapter on the Scarlet Letter, Liza contrasts Hester's radical individualism with Anna's being crushed by a train. Yet she demonstrates how both novels are richly, poetically inclusive and multi-plotted. The blueprint, she writes, for this expansion of novelistic boundaries is to be found in the gospel pericope of the woman taken in adultery, which focuses on the members of the community judging the adulteress and looking at their own consciences. Tolstoy's labyrinth of linkages, of which he was so proud, complicates the question of the community's judgment. Who is the community? Who has the right to judge? As Liza tells us, the tragic problem Tolstoy poses in his multi-plot Anna Karenina is what do Anna's misery and death have to do with the rest of mankind, starting with Levin? Liza's astute reading of the home epic Middlemarch, in light of these questions, also results in her concluding that the question that haunts Anna Karenina is not about whether Anna is to blame, but whether anyone can or will help Anna in her misery. Um, what if her suicide were not in inevitable, but contingent? Indeed, as she shows us, Wolfe was deeply troubled by this question. She wrote to Vita Sackville West in 1929 that nearly every scene of Anna Karenina was branded in her. How true for many of us here. But she was offended, as Liza has told us already, by the way in which at the end of the novel, Anna is allowed to drop out. Liza demonstrates that this very disconnect may be the point, or as she 
uh, cites Joan Delaney Grossman, the keystone to the hidden architectonics of the novel. I couldn't agree with her more. Yet, as she also demonstrates, the moral and aesthetic offense that Wolfe experienced may well have been an irritating grain of sand that resulted in a pearl, the multi-plotted Mrs. Dalloway, with its differently unconnected worlds of Clarissa Dalloway and Septimus Smith. Both Anna and Septimus leap down to their deaths. I wonder if Anna's leap may possibly also have been a leap of despair that too late, perhaps, even in midair, became a grotesque Pascalian leap of faith. Liza shows powerfully how both Levin and Clarissa struggle to regard the pain of others, whether of distant others or of those nearby. In conclusion, Liza's book contains so many insightful footnotes, so many trenchant analyses of details that come to embody the whole. So let me give two examples. First, Liza's familiarity with the drafts of Anna Karenina frequently informs her argument. At the end of a long footnote, which references the late Hugh McLean's work, she cites a remark Tolstoy is reported to have made. What interest is there in knowing that Christ went out to relieve himself? What do I care that he was resurrected? So he was resurrected. So what? Good for him. For me, the important question is, what am I to do? How am I to live? Second, throughout Liza's book, there are scattered references uh, to milk throughout Liza's book and also throughout Anna Karenina. Whether pertaining to Levin's beloved cow, Pava, a love much mocked, by the way, by at least one of Tolstoy's contemporary critics, to Dolly's children, to the nursing kitty. In her chapter on Pascal, The Eternal Silence of Infinite Spaces, Liza contrasts the epiphanic moment at which Levin stares at the Milky Way, evoking cosmic milk, while inside, (laughs) Kitty is breastfeeding their child. This homely detail hints, quote, at some correlation between Levin's earthly existence and the stars, unquote, although the connection remains obscure and in doubt. She references this paragraph with a rich footnote, which in closing I shall read because it is emblematic of how Liza succeeds in highlighting passing details and rendering them foundational to the large questions. This is in a footnote. And yet myths about the origins of the Milky Way remind the reader that family happiness is indeed precarious. The constellation was formed when Hera wrested the baby Hercules from her breast as he was sucking milk. She had been tricked into feeding her husband's love child. Thus, a reference to the Milky Way, which seems peaceful enough, has associations with various forms of family unhappiness in Anna Karenina from the Oblonsky children who go, this is still Liza's footnote, from the Oblonsky children who go without milk as the novel opens to little Anna Karenina suffering until Karenin learns that her wet nurse does not have enough milk, to Kitty's consultation with her sister on how to breastfeed baby Mitya that Anna, desperate for Dolly's comfort, inadvertently interrupts, unquote. Thus, Anna alone succumbs to her despairing vision of the universal desire for dirty ice cream, yet another milk product, and (laughs) continues on to her death. Thank you for this. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating Liza Knapp's Anna Karenina and others, Tolstoy's Labyrinth of Plots. I hope you'll check out this podcast, Sister Podcast, featuring Irina Reifman's book, How Russia Learned to Write, Literature and the Imperial Table of Ranks, 
And I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Philip Kitcher and Evelyn Fox Keller's book, The Season's Altar, How to Save Our Planet in Six Acts. From Columbia University's Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Ann Levitsky.